Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway in Portland, Maine. We'd love to have you join us for worship Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., currently on Zoom and broadcast live on Facebook. Visit our website at hopegateway.com to learn more. Whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message to be meaningful. Wherever you are, join us in doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Hear God's word speaking to you. A reading from Matthew's story of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught them, saying, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Here ends the reading. You can time how long it takes before I kick that bottle of water over. It's it's gonna happen. So there is a common misunderstanding of these familiar words of Jesus. Actually, that's what I called it the last time, years ago when I preached on this passage from Matthew's gospel, a misunderstanding. I think I was trying to be very polite to the Lutherans I was serving. I'm Presbyterian and they did not trust me, so I was careful. But this week, I'm here, And this week, I read Damon Garcia's book, The God Who Riots, Taking Back the Radical Jesus, and I realized I don't need to mince my words. It's not just a misunderstanding. It is a deliberate corruption, an intentional misinterpretation that has plagued the dominant version of Christianity for a very, very long time. Because in the centuries following Jesus's life and death and continuing right up until today, those who held political and religious power and control have used and abused this text and lots of other ones to domesticate Jesus, to tame him and his message and water it down until we were left with nothing but gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who doesn't cause any trouble, but just loves the little children. (laughs) And he hands out bread and wine to his friends, and all the while he encourages all of us to be passive, to be milquetoasts, who are always nice and never make waves. The result is that for too many of his followers, the word Christian became synonymous with the word doormat. The title of the sermon is, Does Jesus Want You to Be a Doormat? Spoiler alert, the answer is no. (laughs) Taken out of context, sayings of Jesus like, if anyone hits you on the right cheek, turn the other one. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them all your clothes. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go the second mile also. They could be easily misunderstood and twisted. And before you know it, the equation Christian equals doormat 
begins to seem like the only possible interpretation of what Jesus was saying. But why would anyone twist his words like that? Who, this is a rhetorical question, who benefits? <laughs> who benefits from convincing the masses that they should be meek and submissive and compliant and not cause any trouble if they wanna to go to heaven someday and be with gentle Jesus? People in power who want to stay there, that's who. From Roman Emperor Constantine and his co-opting of Christianity as a tool of empire building, to English King James and his mistranslation of the Bible that was designed very intentionally to keep lower classes in their place and the monarchy and the nobility in theirs, to white slave traders and enslavers, to the colonizers of North America with their doctrine of discovery. Garcia reminds us in his book that there is a long history of what he calls the church choosing the side of the rich and powerful again and again until it was impossible to imagine or recognize a mainstream Christianity that chooses the side of the poor and the powerless. I've never met Damon Garcia, but if I did, I might, after some niceties, encourage him to say that a little differently, because I think it was the rich and powerful who chose the church to justify the way things are. They use Christianity to preserve the status quo and suppress change while justifying their violence, their exploitation, and their dehumanizing of the powerless, the marginalized, the other, the savages, the heathens, and anyone else they needed to control or enslave or colonize. But God, with her preferential option for the poor, as Paulo Freire put it, gets the last laugh. Because as Damon Garcia acknowledges, though religion does have the power to justify the world as it is, it can also empower people to fight for a new world. Yep, religion can and has been used to justify inequality, but it can also empower people to resist inequality. So Garcia's book, and I encourage you to read it, I saw there were some copies available out in the lobby, it invites us to reclaim the radical elements at the root of the Christian faith. Radical, after all, means get to the root. And use them as tools to empower our resistance of institutions that maintain injustice. He writes, there is historic Christian teaching that was developed to justify colonization, and there is historic Christian teaching that was developed by colonized peoples, not by colonizers, but by colonized peoples to empower their struggle for freedom. I agree with them. And P.S., here's something we all need to remember when we read Jesus's Sermon on the Mount or any of his other words. Jesus of Nazareth was a colonized person. He was a Jewish peasant, living in a region that was conquered by the Roman Empire, who then went about systematically cultivating relationships of collusion with religious authorities, the Jewish religious authorities. Here's an excerpt, and it will appear on the screen behind me from the book, The God Who Riots, and it makes this point. 
Jesus was surrounded by fellow teachers whose religion was used to justify the social divisions present in the Roman Empire of the first century. Jesus's religion empowered him to challenge the social divisions of his day, and so he intentionally blessed those who were the most devalued and dehumanized by society. Religious authorities condemned Jesus for whom he chose to associate with. Jesus condemned those who used their religion to justify their discrimination. It's a great book, you need to read it. And that brings us back to today's passage from Matthew. I bet you didn't think I was ever gonna get there, but here we are. Because when we take a closer look, we discover that Jesus never intended these teachings to inspire his followers to be passive victims, resigned to rolling over and getting taken advantage of all because God wants them to be nice. Nothing could be further from the truth. For starters, Jesus himself never displayed that kind of passivity. Throughout his whole life and his death, he resisted injustice and evil with every fiber of his being. And he urged his followers and he urges us to transcend both passivity on the one hand and violence on the other by finding in the words of Bible scholar who I think a bunch of people in this room know and read, Walter Wink. Walter Wink talks about a third way when he takes this text apart, a way that's disruptive, confrontational, and nonviolent. In the verses from the Sermon on the Mount we heard this morning, Jesus provides three real, real world examples of what this kind of nonviolent resistance to oppression could look like. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other. To get what he's saying, you have to know that in first century Palestinian and Roman culture and customs, the left hand was never used to strike someone. It was considered unclean. So for someone to strike you on the right cheek, it would have to be with a backhanded slap. In Jesus's day, a backhanded slap was not a blow meant to injure, but to insult, humiliate, and degrade. And it was never done to someone who was your social equal, only to an inferior. So masters backhanded slaves, Romans backhanded Jews, and Jesus's followers and Jesus were Jews, so they would have been very familiar with this. Jesus is saying to them, refuse to accept this kind of treatment anymore. If they backhand you, lift up your head and turn the other cheek so they can't use a backhand. They have to hit you with a fist and the only people in that culture who hit each other with fists were social equals. By turning the left cheek, the oppressed person acts in defiance and refuses to allow the other person to have dominance in the relationship. They're saying with their actions, I am a human being just like you. I am your equal, I am a child of God. Mahatma Gandhi loved this saying. He was a great admirer of Jesus, as you probably know, and he called this non-cooperation with everything that's humiliating. Non-cooperation with everything that's humiliating. This is certainly different than the doormat school of thought, where Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek so we can get clobbered again. On the contrary, he's telling us stand up to oppressors. 
He's teaching people back then and he's teaching us today a way that involves neither cowardly submission nor physical violence. What about if anyone sues you, give them not just your outer garment, but all your clothes? Here, Jesus is using another example that would have been very familiar to the poorest of the poor that followed him. Indebtedness was an enormous problem for the poor in first century Palestine. The wealthy would loan money to peasants at exorbitant rates of interest and then drag them into court and sue them for payment. And in that courtroom, the creditors, the wealthy people, would confiscate ancestral land and anything else they could to get their money back, including the clothes off the backs of the poor. When Jesus advises the poor people in that situation to give those creditors who sue them not only their outer cloak, but all their clothes, including their underwear, so they'd be standing in the middle of a public courtroom naked, he's giving them a way to shame those who were oppressing them and the system that was oppressing them. Because in their culture, there was actually deep shame around nakedness, but not for the naked person, which frankly, I can't get my head around, but it, the shame was attached to anyone who looked at them. The shame came to you if you looked at somebody in that condition. So the person being sued overcomes his humiliation by shaming those in power. And it is a brilliant stroke of political satire because it forces a corrupt system to look at the fact that it's pushed an entire social class into landless destitution, even taking the clothes off their backs. So by following Jesus' strategy, the powerless are empowered. They get to take the initiative, assert their humanity and their dignity, and unmask the cruelty and the injustice of a corrupt system. What about the last one? If anyone forces you to go a mile, and I immediately think of my physical therapist, who you know I call my physical terrorist. Um, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go the second also. So why would anyone except Dan the man at Back in Motion ever consider forcing someone to go a mile? To our 21st century ears, it doesn't quite make sense. But to Jesus's audience in the first century, it was immediately recognizable. It was a reference to the Roman law of Angaria, which permitted by law Roman troops as they marched through any village or town to seize people off the streets and force them to carry their packs. And those packs weighed about 70 pounds. I guarantee you, and it's been documented, that soldiers did not march through a town and pick the richest, wealthiest, most powerful person to do this. They grabbed the poor, the peasants, the disenfranchised, and they made them do it. But here's the thing about the Roman law Angaria. It limited them to doing it for only one mile. And Jesus knew that if this military code was ever violated, the centurions who were in charge of about 100 soldiers, they could discipline the soldiers in their care. And we have lists of what the kinds of punishments were that they did for this, including imposing fines, flogging, reducing their rations, making the violator camp outside the fort, and this is my favorite one, or making the guy who made someone carry their pack for more than a mile stand for a whole day in front of the commander's tent holding a clod of dirt. <laughs> 
In other words, a Roman soldier did not want to get caught making a civilian carry his pack more than one mile. So going a second mile, that's a way for a person forced to carry the pack to resist the soldier's efforts to oppress him and a way for him to assert his human dignity. The rules belong to Caesar, Jesus is telling us, but one's response to the rules, those belong to God. By going the extra mile, the oppressed person has seized the initiative, taken back the power of choice, and the soldier is thrown off balance by this odd turn of events. Imagine the scene, a Roman soldier in all of his garb pleading alongside this lowly Jewish peasant, please give me my pack back. <laughs> it's brilliant. And notice, please, that the person going a second mile isn't doing it to be pious or to get brownie points in heaven or to be nice to the soldier. He's doing it to protest an abusive practice while at the same time recovering his own humanity. So when we see these familiar words from scripture in this new light, it's clear that Jesus was offering a way for those who had only known a life of cringing before those in power to liberate themselves. A way they could resist anyone oppressing them without becoming just like them by using violence. Jesus taught them to disrupt, to riot, using nonviolent resistance. And for him, this kind of resistance was a sign of God's kingdom breaking in from below. So did Jesus ask his followers to be doormats? Absolutely not. However, neither did he tell them to be the greatest and the best and the first and the new Romans. Although that happened, our friend Constantine, thank you. Anyway, he didn't tell them to do that. And when his closest friends had an argument one day about who's the greatest of us, who gets to sit at your right hand or your left hand, he put the whole thing to rest by saying, if you wanna be first, you've gotta be last of all and servant of all. This sounds like doormat advice again, until you realize he had something else in mind because the word for servant of all is diakonos. And that's the job title for the lowest rank of all servants. It's the one who served meals to everyone else and was only allowed to eat what was left behind after everyone else in the household had eaten their fill. These servants, the slaves who get backhanded across the face, the tenant farmers whose creditors take the coats right off their backs, the peasants taken from their homes and forced to march a mile carrying a 70 pound pack. These last and least are the first and the greatest in the radical rioting religion of Jesus and God takes their side. That makes people uncomfortable, by the way, but when you read Garcia's book over and over again, he says, God takes a side, my friends, God takes a side. Jesus's third way of nonviolent resistance to all this brutality and abuse and exploitation that the world can give, it's a path to liberation and freedom a way to transform the status quo and change it into something that's a whole lot more like God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. A place where people are not treated like doormats and where there is room for all of us at the banquet table. Garcia ends the very last chapter of his book by describing this vision, saying this, 
that's the kind of religion I'm interested in. That's the kind of God I'm interested in. That's the kind of life I'm interested in. So are we, Brother Damon. So are we. May it be so. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. To hear more about Hope Gateway and to discover how together we can do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, visit our website at hopegateway.com.